Revolution. And there's a reason that I'm playing this, and Cynthia already guessed what it is, but I'm going to see if anybody else knows what it is. <laughs> yes, good. So it's The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and uh, there's, a, there's a little reason for this, but let me say a prayer for us, and then I'll explain the reason. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this new year. We thank you for all of the ways that you blessed us during 2019. And Lord, we pray during the season of Epiphany where we focus on the gift of the gospel to the Gentiles, that you would recreate in us a sense of wonder, the mystery of your plan of salvation, and how you have offered to us something that is so amazing and rich and wondrous in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight and for the gift of this book, the Screwtape Letters. We pray that you would bless our time and that you would use it for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, not Westminster Choir, not... King's College, Cambridge, but it was very interesting. Jane and I went to Nashville for the wedding of a good friend of ours' daughter right after Christmas, and so we were wandering around early on a Saturday morning about 10.30, and all of the bars are already open, and all of them already have bands playing. I mean, there were literally 30 bands playing as we walked around. But it was interesting as we walked by this place because there was a break between the songs and in the break I heard somebody yell out in a loud voice, do y'all believe in the devil? (laughs) Now that's not what you usually hear in a bar. And then the guy proceeded to say, well if you don't believe in the devil you should. Because there is a power of darkness in this world that is trying to oppress you. And you need to be careful because Satan is real and he is out to take you down. And he said, if you have a Ouija board, throw it out. Don't mess with the occult. Don't mess. Don't joke about Satan because he is real and he wants to take you out. And then he went into this song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, Georgia. and you can't really see it in the video, but in the parts, I don't know if you know the song, but it's sort of a competition of whether the devil can play the fiddle better than this young man. And the, the lead singer, whenever he was pretending to be the devil, he had like these torch things where he, not real, not real, but he would be like going after the young man that was playing the fiddle. But it was just so interesting to me because it is not something that our culture takes seriously. And to hear this coming out of a bar on Broadway in Nashville, Tennessee, was quite remarkable. So it was a reminder that sometimes the truth will out in the strangest places. So... um, yeah, well, you know, no, definitely not, definitely not. Yeah, we were we were actually pretty surprised that the uh, the bars were open at that point. So very interesting. Yeah, yeah. That that could be. That could be. So we are in 2020 still standing against the devil's schemes and looking at the screw tape letters. And as we do that, uh, we are going to jump forward a little bit this time. We've been rehearsing the first 10 letters and their lessons. And so we are going to leave the, the first nine of those letters back in 2019 because if we keep reviewing all of them, we will not have time to talk about the new ones. Um, but that does not mean that you should not go back and reread and review. And tonight I want to particularly focus on this verse about the armor because we're going to see 
the inverse of this verse in the screw tape letter that we are studying tonight. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So this whole idea of the armor of God that is depicted in this verse so beautifully is that we cannot stand against the schemes of the devil without the armor of God. And having that armor is unbelievably important in this command that goes all through here to stand. And stand not only means standing up, but it means take a stand. That you are not cowering, um, and you're not being aggressive, but you are taking a stand. You are standing your ground. So keep that idea about the armor in the back of your mind, because you're going to see what Screwtape has to say about armor tonight. So why are we studying this? Um, lessons on understanding the battle, realizing that following Jesus is a battle and it is a daily battle. Lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. This is so unbelievably important because the whole Christian framework that used to dominate a lot of fields of scholarship is almost gone. And the only people who are going to be able to preserve that are those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Lessons on the psychology of temptation. Part of the reason this is so important is we live in a culture that says there really isn't any such thing as temptation because temptation implies sin and that there's something that's wrong. And if there's not anything that's wrong, then whatever you want to do is fine. So there's no need to resist. But what you see in the whole uh, conceit of the screw tape letters is that Satan knows that there are things that are wrong, and he wants us to invest in those. Lessons on habits to cultivate deep, that deepen faith in Christ. We're going to talk more about habits in a second. And then lessons on living a boldly Christian life. One of the things that Lewis and the Inklings were very... Uh, concerned about was the anemic way that so many Christians lived out their faith. And one of my favorite quotations from Lewis, I can't remember which book it's in, but he said, you know, when the Apostle Paul went into cities and preached the gospel, riots broke out, thousands were converted, people were put in jail. And Lewis says, when I go somewhere and preach, Ladies, invite me to tea. <laughs> and I'm the, the first to say tea is a wonderful thing, but Lewis is trying to say that we need to be people who are mindful of what kind of impact are we having for the gospel. So, on to habits. Part of the reason I want to spend a moment on this, even though we've seen this before, is that habits are something that, so often fly, they fly under the radar. And New Year's is a time where so many people make New Year's resolutions. How many people in this room have ever made a New Year's resolution? <laughs> How many of you have always kept every New Year's resolution you made? Yeah, yeah. That's, I think, pretty much the story of New Year's resolutions. But this thing about habits 
is the way that God has wired us, our actions are unbelievably important. And we've been seeing this in Screwtape over and over again. But I want to just read this quotation from letter 13 that we're about to get to. And what he says here, and this is Screwtape talking about the patient, let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And so this idea of just keeping us in our mind, our thoughts, our intentions, without ever issuing into action is what the devil is all about. And this book, The Common Rule, that we've talked a little bit about, uh, this is one of his uh, quotations early on in the book where he actually is talking about New Year's resolutions and why they're so ineffective and that what we need to do instead is to take a look at our habits. And he says, only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. And this is the, you know, sort of the extreme example of this, is if you say, my New Year's resolution is that I am going to go on the Whole30 diet and I'm going to lose 20 pounds. But my <laughs> habit is to go to Krispy Kreme and order 12 donuts on the way to work every day and eat them. Now, your habit is in direct conflict with what your resolution is. But we often live in that kind of cognitive dissonance where our habits are keeping us from doing the things that we know in our head and our heart we ought to be doing, particularly in our faith. So habits are something really important to be looking at. So jumping to letter 10, which was the one we looked at last time, and I want to just review this one since we didn't get to spend a lot of time on this. Um, these habits to annoy the devil are things that we should look at and consider and determine whether these are part of our lives or whether these are the kinds of things that we just think about and don't ever do anything about. So the first one is choose your friends wisely. You become your friends. Now, many of you probably had parents that said something like that to you, but there is increasingly research that really does support this. And the idea is that if you surround yourself with people who have values that are antithetical to yours, then your values are going to eventually shift. And part of the problem is that when you're not in a group of friends that is life-giving and challenging, is it's easy to become stagnant. And that's one of the great gifts that we have of the example of Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings, is looking at the way that their relationships were life-giving and brought all sorts of fruit because of their relationships. And you might remember a couple of weeks, um, I guess maybe two weeks before we quit for the fall semester, I was talking about a presentation that Diana Glyer gave up at this conference at Montreat. And she was talking about the Inklings and how unbelievably productive they were and the influence they had on calling these amazing works out of each other challenging each other to be better, stronger, deeper, to get out of their comfort zone and to make a difference in the world. And one of the things that she said that I thought was so profoundly true was that a lot of commentators will say that the Inklings circled around C.S. Lewis. And there's some truth to that. But what she said is really the heart of the Inklings was the relationship, the relational space between Tolkien and Lewis. And that that collaboration, that fellowship, that bondedness in Christ and in creativity and in worldview that existed in that relationship that itself bore fruit that overflowed in these other people's lives. And so 
part of this means that we need to choose our friends wisely. And I don't want to step on any toes of anyone, including myself, but how often do we actually pray through whose lives is God calling me to invest in? I would like to suggest to you that that might be a good exercise for 2020, to pray about who is God calling you to invest in friend-wise, because so often we get sort of in habits of relationships, and sometimes those relationships are not healthy or life-giving. The second thing is to cultivate authenticity and to speak the truth in love. This is, again, in our cultural moment, something that is unbelievably important. We've talked about a lot of the surveys of the man-on-the-street polls that are taken about attitudes about things. And so often, uh, the words that come back when people are asked, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? The first word that comes back is judgmental, and the second word that comes back is hypocritical. Now, this is really sad, Because Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. So we've come a long way off of that. But part of the hypocrisy is the lack of authenticity. Uh, One of the beautiful things today that I would commend to you uh, to listen to, it's up on our website now, is Ben Haygood gave a tremendous testimony at the men's lunch to a packed house today about the work that the Lord did in his life um, of miraculously providing a perfect match for a stem cell bone marrow transplant that if he had not gotten, he would no longer be with us. And it is the most remarkable story. But what's truly remarkable about it is Ben is a very accomplished man, a brilliant lawyer, a Marine officer, formerly in the House of Representatives, been a lawyer for over 30 years in Charleston, and he was deeply vulnerable in this talk and shared things that were very deeply personal. And I think part of the reason that it was so affecting for people was because he was so authentic. And we live in a world where people have their social media profile that everything is smiling and happy. Um, And authenticity is often missing. Speaking the truth in love is often missing as well. Uh, There's a lot of speak your truth. That's one of the mantras of this age. Uh, But usually the in love part is left out. Uh, It's more like speak your truth and everyone else get out of my way because I deserve what I want. Uh, or we're so loving that we lose sight of all truth, uh, indiscriminate inclusivity. So the scriptures call us to speak the truth in love so that we can grow up in every way into Christ. And then remember daily that your faith requires you to make choices. And Jesus, this is such a beautiful verse from uh, this discourse at the Last Supper, if you were of the world, The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we wonder sometimes why we have a hard time or why um, we feel like a fish out of water. And it's because we are citizens, if we follow Jesus, of a different kingdom. And that doesn't mean there won't be beautiful things that happen in this life, but there also will be plenty of times that are really hard. And we have to make the choices that align with our citizenship. And then fourthly, live purposely, avoiding the seduction of worldly vanities. Living purposefully means not putting off the things that are important. It's all too easy, again, to have in our head Yes, this is important, and I'll do that later. Yes, this is important, and I'll do that later. And uh, we, we mess up because we neglect the truth of that old proverb that says, do not squander time, for it is the stuff of which life is made. And then the fifth one, cultivate an integrated life rather than a spiritual secular split. And I don't think any of us probably do this intentionally, But it's really easy 
to have kind of your Wednesday night world, your Sunday morning world, and then the rest of your life. And there's not a lot of integration uh, in those. And what scripture tells us is we're to put off our old self, which belongs to our former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And notice those active verbs, put off. It's like literally take off your jacket and put on a different one. And then lastly, be deliberate about living out your priorities. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. And again, so many of these are really saying the same sort of thing, but being deliberate is another great lesson that we can see in the lives of the Inklings. They did not really waste a lot of time, and they are living in such a way that they're making an impact on the world. So that's letter 10, which sets us up for letter 11. And letter 11 is, um, I think, one of the great letters in this book. And I want to commend to you uh, these two handouts, uh, one on the role of laughter in the Christian life, and then the second one on flippancy. So we're going to get to that in just a minute. So, Steve, can I get you to close up? Uh, so, screw tape letter 11, my dear Wormwood, everything is clearly going very well. Remember in the last letter he's met these new friends that are bright and attractive and rich and atheistic and cynical about everything. So everything's clearly going very well. I'm especially glad to hear that the two new friends have now made him acquainted with their whole set. All these, as I find from the record office, are thoroughly, thoroughly reliable people, steady, consistent scoffers and worldlings, who without any spectacular crimes are progressing quietly and comfortably toward our Father's house. You speak of their being great laughers, I trust this does not mean that you are under the impression that laughter as such is always in our favor. The point is worth some attention. I divide the causes of human laughter into joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. You will see the first, that is joy, among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided, but the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time shows that they are not the real cause. What the real cause is, we do not know. Something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art which the humans call music. And something like it occurs in heaven, a meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience quite opaque to us. Laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged. Besides, the phenomenon is of itself disgusting and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. Fun is closely related to joy, a sort of emotional froth arising from the play instinct. It is very little use to us. It can sometimes be used, of course, to divert humans from something else which the enemy would like them to be feeling or doing. But in itself, it has wholly undesirable tendencies. It promotes charity, courage, contentment, and many other evils. The joke proper, which turns on sudden perception of incongruity, is a much more promising field. I'm not thinking primarily of indecent or body humor, which, though much relied on by second-rate tempters, is often disappointing in its results. The truth is that humans are pretty clearly divided on this matter into two classes. There are some to whom no passion is as serious as lust, and for whom an indecent story ceases to produce lasciviousness precisely insofar as it becomes funny. There are others in whom laughter and lust are excited at the same moment and by the same things. The first sort joke about sex because they can afford a pretext for talking about sex. If your man is of the first type, body humor will not help you. I shall never forget the hours which I wasted, hours to me of unbearable tedium, with one of my early patients in bars and smoking rooms before I learned this rule. 
Find out which group the patient belongs to and see that he does not find out. The real use of jokes or humor is in quite a different direction, and it is especially promising among the English who take their sense of humor so seriously that a deficiency in this sense is almost the only deficiency at which they feel shame. Humor is for them the all-consoling, and mark this, the all-excusing grace of life. Hence, it is invaluable as a means of destroying shame. If a man simply lets others pay for him, he is mean. If he boasts of it in a jocular manner and twits his fellows with having been scored off, he's no longer mean, but a comical fellow. Mere cowardice is shameful. Cowardice boasted of, with which humorous exaggerations and grotesque gestures can be passed off as funny. Cruelty is shameful, unless the cruel man can represent it as a practical joke. A thousand bawdy or even blasphemous jokes do not help toward a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows, if it can only get itself treated as a joke. And this temptation can be almost entirely hidden from your patient by that English seriousness about humor. Any suggestions that there might be too much of it can be represented to him as puritanical or as betraying a lack of humor. But flippancy is the best of all. In the first place, it is very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue or indeed about anything else. Any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that, the, that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know. I'll read that again. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know. And it is quite free from the dangers that are inherent in the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect. And it excites no affection between those who practice it. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So there is a lot in here. And just to give you a little background, I wanted to share with you, this is... um, quoted in one of the handouts that you have. In the 4th century, a monk named Evagrius identified key temptations against living the Christian life. He named eight of them, and they became the eight deadly sins. Now we know that Pope Gregory the Great reduced them to seven to fit them in with the symbolic biblical number. But unfortunately, the sin that Gregory conflated into sloth was the sin of sadness. Sadness in the face of God's grace and mercy was a denial of faith and hope. But it isn't the vice that concerns me. It is its corresponding virtue. What Evagrius identified as the blessing of hilaritas as essential to Christian living, even if you're an ascetic monk, and especially if you're a lawyer or accountant. And basically what he's saying here, he's not talking about sadness that's the result of tragedy or something like that. But having an Eeyore-ish, do you know Eeyore, Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? An Eeyore-ish view of life that instead of focusing on the joy and wonder and love and grace and mercy in the kingdom of God, you choose to complain all the time, that you're down in the dumps all the time, that you're characterized by misery and sadness instead of joy. And what Evagrius was saying was that Christians of all people should be people who are joyful. And joy is a thread that runs all the way through the scriptures from the beginning to the end. And it is something that is in woefully short supply in the Christian world today. That we are so busy with being right about different issues or putting down people or being concerned about the political sphere that the joy of our salvation 
is not something that shows very much in our countenances. And people are watching us. People who don't know Jesus are watching us. So Christians recovering joy is really important. But I think this little background is a good reminder that joy was something, particularly in the early church, that was prized. And we, we've lost our sense of that. So looking at some habits from letter 11, um, the first one is to avoid constantly surrounding yourself in person or virtually with scoffers. Psalm 1. Psalm 1 uh, one of the things you probably know if you spend any time in the Psalms is that in the Hebrew world, things that start off are particularly important. So Psalm 1, right at the very beginning, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And does anybody know what the next line is? His delight is the Right, his delight not his okayness. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree that is and it's just if you don't know that psalm, go spend some time in that psalm. It is beautiful and rich. How many of you know somebody who is a scoffer? And if you spend much time on social media, scoffers are everywhere or if you watch news no matter which from the far left to the far right it's full of scoffers and in this letter remember Screwtape says the fact that these people are scoffers these new friends of the patient that's one of the best things the devil can use because when you are surrounded by scoffing uh, you have a tendency to become a scoffer yourself without even realizing it. And scoffing is unbelievably dangerous because it is closely allied with flippancy. So I'm going to save the thunder about that for a little later. Um, so the scripture verses, first Psalm 1, and then do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. That does not mean that we are not to pray for people that are in our lives that are difficult, who are scoffers. It does not mean that we don't invest in them when we believe the Lord has called us to that. But what it does mean is that we surround ourselves with people who are going to sharpen us, that are going to cause us to go deeper and stronger in our walk with Christ. Because if you're surrounded by scoffers all the time, it is going to drag you down. The second thing is to cultivate joy. Joy is something that is so unbelievably important in the Christian life. And it's one of the reasons that I love C.S. Lewis. Joy just bursts out of Lewis's writing all over the place. And it's joy, not in circumstances. Lewis, a lot of times, the circumstances of his life were not particularly pleasant. But he had such joy because he understood the gospel, um, and he had a view of the, the gift of things that God gives us in beauty and goodness and truth and relationships, all of that, that he cultivated a heart of gladness and joy. And there is this uh, interesting theme that runs through the screw tape letters that we're going to see in a number of the letters where he talks about... Uh, we don't understand this, or we do not know. And remember, the devil hates to admit that he doesn't know anything. But one of the interesting things is this word opaque is used multiple times. And the word opaque means that you can't see through it. And there are several things that cause uh, opacity around the patient. And remember, that makes screw tape literally crazy because he's trying to tempt the patient and when there's an, something opaque around the patient, he can't see the patient, he can't get to him, he can't suggest things to him. And so the first place we see this is here with joy. Then when the patient is in a place of joy, there's an opacity that surrounds him where Satan can't get to him. And this is not happiness. This is not, oh, I got 100 on the test. Although that's good. Nothing wrong with getting 100. But this is joy in the Lord. 
This is the kind of joy that had men weeping as they listened to Ben Haggad's story today. It is the kind of joy that comes from being deeply connected to the kingdom of God, seeing the spiritual truth, seeing the Holy Spirit work, seeing the work of God in a sunset. There are, there are a lot of ways that joy can happen, but it is something that surrounds the believer with a cloud that is opaque to Satan, according to Screwtape. And he says it's connected with music, which we're going to get to a letter in a, in a few where Screwtape goes off on music and how just detestable it is and how it should be eradicated. And one of the worst things about music is that it's one of the few things that we know that will exist in heaven that we can experience on earth. So Screwtape wants to get rid of all music and all silence, but that's another letter, so I'll hold off on that. Um, but joy is connected with music, it's connected with heaven, and therefore it is, of all things, to be discouraged. So Screwtape, Satan wants to steal your joy. It is as if you have got a big piece of cheese that you want to eat, and there's a giant rat on the counter. He wants that cheese. He wants your cheese. And Satan wants your joy. And that means you need to cultivate it and you need to protect it. If you are trying to grow beautiful flowers in your garden and you live on Seabrook Island where there are a lot of deer, you know that you need to have some kind of barrier to protect those flowers or else they're going to be eaten. And you know it's not that the deer bear malice towards you. Um, like Satan does, but you've got to protect your joy. And I love these two verses, and there are literally hundreds of these. This is a great study to do if you've never done it, is just start, look for the word joy, start in Genesis and just go all the way through. Um, so this is from Psalm 126. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. One of the things about joy is that if you are joyful, people want to know why. It's so rare today because most people are like, yeah, if you see somebody that's joyful, it makes an impression. So this is really important. And notice the result there that it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them because they were full of joy and laughter. And then this beautiful verse from Isaiah, which is one of those prophecies, has got sort of a double fulfillment of the return um, out of exile, but also the ultimate return to heaven. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. And that is what awaits us when the Lord returns to take us to be with him. And when we have that time in the new heaven and the new earth. But we can begin to taste that now. And we need to cultivate that. And this doesn't mean that, there aren't, that we bottle up our emotions of sadness when things go wrong. But it does mean that we keep it in perspective. And joy is something that uh, other people in music and prayer, there are disciplines that can help you cultivate joy. It's not just like a feeling where you, you know, kind of get through and go like, joy, joy, joy. You know, and if you focus enough, it's going to like, boom, happen. But that's not the way it works. But there are things that you can cultivate that will bring you joy. It can be in relationships, it can be in nature, it can be in worship, it can be in literature. There are all manner of things that can be in scripture as a place that can bring great joy as that truth resonates in your heart. Praying with another believer can bring joy. There are so many things, and we need to make time for those. And then related to this, plan regular times of fun that promote love, fellowship, courage, and contentment. This is sort of related to what we talked about last term when we were talking about pleasures. And the problem is that the Christians have ceded the idea of pleasure and fun to the other side. 
you know, people think if you want to have fun, you know, it's like that old joke, you know, I'd rather um, be in hell because the party's better. You know, that all of these, you know, there's a whole Billy Joel lyric about that. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Um, you know, the sinners have much more fun, only the good die young. There's so much wrong with that, I can't even. But, but it's a great song. It sounds good. Uh, but fun is something that our culture has lost. We don't think of fun as strategic for anything. Um, families used to have fun together. Um, there used to be traditions and outings and things like that. And now we are so focused that we're not very good about planning fun, just doing something. And it doesn't necessarily need to be something frivolous, but the idea of fun is that it's with other people. Fun is not usually an isolated activity. And we live in a culture that is more and more isolated and cocooning, and that is why loneliness is at epidemic levels right now. So planning times of fun, things that are just fun to be together uh, is a great spiritual discipline and a great way to invite people who are not believers to be with the body of Christ and experience joy. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And part of the reason that this is so sad is I cannot tell you just in the past three months, I've probably had at least a dozen conversations with people who are in their late 20s who live in Charleston and they say, I just am so frustrated because it seems like all that anyone wants to do on Friday or Saturday is go on Upper King Street and get drunk. And that's all there is to do. And I don't, you know, if the only alternative is to stay at home alone, I'll probably go with them. But I, and it's just sad that people have lost the idea of, oh, we could go to dinner together. Oh, we could go to a movie together. Oh, we could get a really fun game and play it. Oh, we could go to a, a, on a walk. Oh, we could drive to the beach. You know, there are a hundred things you could do, but people have lost sight of that. And this is a gift that Christians have, that if we will plan some things, people will come. Um, the fourth thing, avoid the use of humor and sarcasm as a socially acceptable mask for cruelty to others. This is probably a little bit close to home for some of us. Um, avoid the use of humor and sarcasm as a socially acceptable mask for cruelty to others. And as Screwtape says, almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval but with the admiration of his fellows, if only it can get itself treated as a joke. And if you spend any time in a school, you will know that this is rampant. People will say the most appalling things to other people that are cruel and hurtful, and they will play it off, oh, I'm just joking. Oh, yeah. You know, and it is it is the excuse for everything. And so it takes away all personal responsibility for the words that issue out of your mouth. And there's that old saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words may never hurt me. That is a lie. And scripture is very clear that that is a lie. And our words are to be life-giving. And the problem is that we live in a culture that is so full of sarcasm and put-downs that we can buy into this without even knowing it. I remember when I was working at Porter, where Charles is now the chaplain, I had to actually ask some of the students on Vestry to hold me accountable to that, that if I ever did that, to tell me, because it's so epidemic that it's really easy to slip into it. So this is something that I think we need to be very careful about and you know sometimes we do this to people's faces sometimes it's behind people's backs but it is the kind of thing that is cruel and cruelty has no place in the life of the christian and what happens when we start indulging in that is that it builds up a wall 
that is uh, between us and the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So um, if you have a tendency to go off on people or complain about people, um, this is something to think about. There's that old adage, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And that seems to have been lost in our culture. So now, instead of that, we have, if you can't say anything nice, come sit next to me. Or we have, if you can't say anything nice, then you can just say whatever you want, and there are no consequences to that. So I think this is, this is an area where we need help in holding each other accountable and not doing this, remembering that every person, no matter how offensive we may find them, is made in the image of God. And when we are insulting or being cruel to someone, we are doing that to someone who is made in God's image. And then the last one, and I think this is one of the most important things in this whole book, flee from flippancy. Learn to recognize it and do not allow the devil's armor to attach to you. And flippancy is something that is rife in our culture, um, but it's not something that we think about very much. And so there's a, what I thought was a pretty good definition of flippancy here. Frivolously disrespectful, shallow, or lacking in seriousness, characterized by levity, especially with respect to serious or sacred subjects. And this is something that there's been a sea change just in my lifetime. And I don't think of myself as that old, uh, but it's just very interesting when you think about institutions, public officials, um, really anything, how where there used to be an expectation of a tone of respect um, and dignity and all of that, it's just gone. It's just completely gone. And one of the interesting things that Screwtape says in this letter is that flippancy is the most effective thing that builds up armor on the patient that prevents the enemy from having access to him. And I want to just flip back Sorry, that was not an intentional <laughs> pun there. Um, but look again at what he says here. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know. And it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect and it excites no affection between those who practice it. And part of the idea of flippancy is that it's closely allied with cynicism. And there, there really are sort of two sides of the same coin. And in flippancy, if you refuse to take anything seriously, if you refuse ever to have real conversations about what you really think, flippancy is a way of not ever revealing who you really are. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why it becomes such a great tool for Satan. Because when you refuse to engage who you really are, you don't want to have anything to do with the Holy Spirit, with his work, with his transformation of your life. And this idea of flippancy um, is epidemic um, in the millennial generation right now. It is... Um, really, really sad, and part of the problem with it is that when you become so used to relating to people this way, you lose the ability to have real relationships. One of the great uh, sort of signposts of flippancy is the word whatever. Um, whatever. You know, whatever is one of the most dismissive words there is. You, know, you can say, you know, it could be anything from please go clean your room, whatever. <laughs> to, wasn't that a beautiful, wonderful meal we just had? Whatever. You know, it's just a way of sucking the joy completely out of any situation. And the problem with it is that when you're surrounded by it, it's very hard to figure out how to extricate yourself from it. 
And it's the kind of thing when you're with people who you profoundly disagree with about something um, and it's really awkward to say so, it's much easier to just be flippant than to try to engage in a real conversation about it. Um, social media is like poison for this. It is, it is all over everywhere. Um, one of the most unfortunate things is sometimes people think getting in an online debate about something is going to be an effective way to change people's minds. Um, I'm sorry to say that is uh, highly unlikely, but it is a great way of falling prey to flippancy. And the other thing that's sad is that there are many people, adults, who will tell students or younger uh, people that flippancy is a good thing. To be skeptical about everything is good. Um, to be cynical about everything is good because then you won't get hurt. Mm-hmm. But it's like that quotation that we've looked at from Lewis before where he says, to love anything is to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Attach your heart to anything, even an animal, and you set yourself up that it can be broken, stomped on, and torn apart. And he said, lock, if you don't want that, lock it up in the casket of your selfishness, and there it will be safe and impenetrable, but it will grow hard and it will die. And there, there's a lot of truth to that. So flippancy is something that you want to run from like the plague, whereas joy is something that you want to cultivate with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I would encourage you in these handouts, um, one of them is all about flippancy, and there's some reflection questions on there that I would commend to you. Um, the second one is about the role of laughter in the Christian life, uh, which I think is just a really terrific article, and it really is based off of this letter. So his framework for analysis is what Lewis sets out here in the 11th letter of Screwtape. So uh, I would commend both of these to you. Um, you don't have to be a scuba diver to be reading this one. It's very accessible. I promise you it'll be worth the effort. So with that, uh, moving on to our last quotation, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So with that, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of this letter and for the wisdom that it contains about what it means to live boldly for Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess to you how affected we are by our culture, by cynicism, flippancy, sarcasm, cruelty, all of these things. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see where we fall short, and that instead of these things, we would lean into your presence, that we would lean into your kingdom, that we would cultivate joy, that our countenances would show that we belong to you. Lord, we pray that you would use us as your instruments in this world to be bearers of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. 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 Wow.